Hello and welcome to the Edge of the Box Football Podcast, the show where we aim to challenge football convention with thought-provoking and outside-of-the-box points of view. In today's episode, we'll be talking about whether or not strikers make good captains and why Paul Scholes is not, and never has been, on the same level as Steven Gerrard and Frank Lampard. Blasphemy, I hear you shout. Stick around to hear us out. I'm your host, Harry Brent. Okay, um, well, I suppose we should just jump straight into the first topic, shall we? We were, um, basically, should strikers be captains? What do you guys think? Someone start me off. Nope. <laughs> All right, next, uh, next topic. Um, next topic. <laughs> <laughs> no, they should not. Yeah, this was, because this was your, like, you, you were, you brought this up, right before. You were saying that, um, yeah, we meet, well, we briefly mentioned it in in the last podcast, but I yeah. just I've just never understood the reasoning for a striker to be a captain. I just don't think a lot of strikers in the past that have been given captaincy have shown a lot of maturity when it comes to you know decisions. Um, even when speaking, uh, not speaking, sorry, listening to I think it was a Peter Crouch podcast. Mm. Even Peter Crouch said that the mentality is different for each kind of position. So you've got the goalkeepers and you obviously you've got your defenders and midfielders and blah, blah, blah. He said the further up the pitch you get, the more like immature and rational people seem to be. Whereas like the further back you get, like the goalkeeper is like the most sane person that's, you know, really? very... Jens Lehmann. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Relaxed and stuff. And I was like, I wonder, I was like, oh, well, yeah. But yeah, I just, I just don't agree with strikers being... Possibly, uh, like <clears throat> being being relaxed or stuff. But I've heard from, from with good, um, you know, uh, clarity that a lot of people say goalkeepers are the most mental of yeah. positions <laughs> because they're like they're just so they're, they're they're almost not footballers, and because they're kind of isolated generally from the rest of the team when they train, they're kind of all in their own little zone, like a bit wacky. Yeah. And then I think back to the goalkeepers that I've played with, and I was like, yeah, probably probably true. But I take your point <clears> about um, your you know, as you as you go back on the football field um, from striker back to defence, I guess you've got to be more, um, you know, resilient or organised and kind of, I guess, I guess more yeah. more mature. You've got to you've yeah. got to have that structure too. But is is this your feeling? Is it is it is it because of the pe- the kind of people that strikers are, or or is it because you just think that yeah, well, no. like strikers are just not a, it's not good to have your captain so far up the field, for example. Yeah, I feel like I think I feel like a captain is is more beneficial in a defensive role than an attacking and an there an attacking role. Mm. Um, just because I think they can detect help dictate the game better. Um, obviously, strikers can score a goal. That's obviously the main aim of the game mm. when it comes to football. Like that's football one on one, get the ball in the net. But like when it comes to like controlling the game, um, you know, like organising your team I feel like a player that's in more like midfield like central midfield or even you know defence that's got you know the position to look forward at you know at the formation at the positioning of all their players and all their you know opposing Mm. players as well I feel like it's being a captain is more benefit just a lot more beneficial for a defensive minded player or a midfielder that's more holding midfield I guess, yeah, that it feels like, as you said, you can definitely do a lot more and have more of an influence vocally, I guess, and, and you can see a lot more of the 
more of what's going on when you're when you're deeper. Um, Egby, what, what do you what do you reckon? Should strikers be allowed the armband? I think so. I think I, I get I get um, Jero's point in that strategically on the pitch, you want your captain to, to almost see everything. So I can see why you'll maybe want a defender or a midfielder because almost everything's in front of them. Mm. But for me, a, a sort of good counter to that would be um, Thierry Henry as Arsenal captain. And for me, I, I know why they made him captain because he was single-handedly our best player. So when he's walking out the tunnel, the first one that you see, he's the first one that you see, and yeah. that already just puts you in such a mindset of almost going up to that standard. So he almost raises the team by being the player that he is. So you, you, so, think, you think he was a good choice to be captain? I definitely so. I think he was he was carrying the team. He was mm. the best player probably in the league and arguably in the world at that time. So why wouldn't you want? that calibre of player to, to wear the armband. I guess it, it was tough, wasn't it? Because that was, he obviously got the captaincy when Vieira left. Mm. And obviously Vieira had been such an amazing captain for, for mm. Arsenal. It was obviously quite difficult shoes to fill. I, I, not as an, I'm obviously a Chelsea fan, so I don't really have the inside scoop from an Arsenal perspective. But I remember thinking that Henri was probably the smart choice. Because as you said, he was the, your, you know, particularly now that Vieira had left, he's your kind of like standout best player. Yeah. But I don't ever remember particularly feeling that he... I guess it's hard when you follow somebody like Vieira, but I don't remember ever feeling that Henri was this fantastic, like, wow, you know, what a, what a, what a sort of... What a guy to have leading your team. I don't mean that he was the wrong mm. choice. I, don't, I, don't, I think he was probably, as you say, the right choice. But, I, but again, I guess that there's that... When you, when you brought up Thierry Henry, I thought you were going to go down the avenue of you know, they can sometimes feel like the right choice, but maybe they don't have the, the biggest impact. Then again, from an Arsenal perspective, he may have had a good impact. I'm not really... I'm not I think really he sure. set the example with his goals and his dominance on the pitch. So well, that, I think... Yeah, sorry, go on. So I was just going to say, I think that you can almost have... You have different types of leaders. So you have the, the leaders that are vocal, you know, they're shouting at people, you go there, you do this, you do that. And there are other players who are maybe not as vocal but their example is on the pitch. So they'll get the ball and they'll create a goal out of nothing or they'll, and they'll score an incredible goal. So I don't think there's necessarily mm. one sort of set type captain. I think it's quite, it can be quite broad and it depends on the type of players that you have around you and the type of captain that you need specifically for your team. Mm. Yeah, I think that's right. I think it, <clears throat> a certain type of captain, as you say, a striker can, feel, can, can fit into that. Uh, mold whereby he's he's the guy that you look to for an example of of just being um, not necessarily a vocal leader or an organizational leader but just kind of being the example that you follow in terms of ability and professionalism I guess is the way that the way that many strikers get it I mean the reason this topic came up was we were talking about Harry Kane um, Ash you are obviously a big big fan of uh, of, of, of Harry Kane uh, and most Harry's as far as I'm aware um, <laughs> I'm going to cut that out. Um, and, uh, <laughs> but um, no, I mean, what 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 do you think? I mean, are you, I guess you're pretty <clears throat> pleased with Kane being uh, being the being the England captain, and he's what is he Tottenham Tottenham's vice or is he no? I don't yeah, know, the, right, Tottenham's captain. vice captain. You guys, right. uh, Tottenham's captain. I'd I'd have Harry Kane as Tottenham's captain any day. That's nice as well. But uh, yeah, like you said, when we were. Um, Originally discussing this, it was very based around whether or not Harry Kane should be England captain. Yeah. 
so I'm going to tailor my argument more to that than to anything else. Okay. And, yeah, I'd, I'd say you should. Simple as that. Um, <laughs> All right, moving, moving next, on. Next, moving on. But... Yeah, so you're saying there's not got as much impact, but he's impacting the team in different ways. He is, he is still shouting, he's bossing people about, he takes control of the situation. Mm. There's never anything kicking off on the field. Uh, he will go over, he'll, he'll sort it all out, he'll tell people to go the right way. He maintains very level-headed and cool throughout everything. Mostly. mostly. Mm-hmm. Obviously, you lose your temper a few times. Yeah, but I mean, he, he, he's also so impactful in the game, like playing football, like in this last run of games that we've had, like since the World Cup. I think it's been eight games. Mm. Uh, he's had the most goals, the most assists, and the most key passes in the team. Entirely. Yeah. So he is far and large our best player. That's, that's, that's the argument, I think, is that um, these types of players who might not necessarily stand out as you know, your, your absolute captain figure. They're the kind of lead by example people. And I think Kane absolutely fits that mold because he is, you know, he's he, professional he, he's, he is professional. He is really driven. He's obviously very good. So he's going to, he's going to produce things. But I guess the argument is, um, while, you know, you, you, you're always going to have that in Kane. That's, that's always going to be who he is. And, and I guess whether he has the armband or not, he can always kind of inspire that sort of reaction from his teammates. I guess the, 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 the flip side of it is if you were to have somebody slightly deeper then not it's not not necessarily just about um vocalization because obviously you know if you're the deeper you are on the pitch not only can you see everything but you can also communicate with everybody and structure people and stuff um but i guess you can also have more of an impact on not just your teammates but but the opposition as well you know you're if the deeper you are you're kind of in the center of everything all the time and as much as that doesn't necessarily isn't necessarily an absolute necessity it obviously gives you the opportunity to properly influence every single sort of facet of the game at all times if you know if that's what you needed to do i mean we see like with most mo- most captains that we see are I, I i wouldn't have the statistics to hand but i'm guessing most captains are either sort of center midfielders or or center backs and if they're not either of those two they're kind of Goalkeeper, either either the either the be, either the best player on the pitch or the or the oldest player on the pitch. Do you know what I mean? And, and they've kind of mm. got the captaincy by way of another another avenue. Um, but you know, so, so I think I think there's always there's definitely a case for strikers being captains. But I, I I would side with if you have the ability to if there is someone if there is someone in the team that is that is deeper and has as influential a role on the team as as a, as somebody up front would, I would probably want to give it to them just for that reason of they can structure things, they can be an influence, and often, you know, obviously n- none of us played football professionally, but we, you know we played football to an okay standard. The benefit I found from um, captains was just that kind of that that geeing up, that sort of you know the way that the way that they could kind of um, inspire you to to get get to the ball or to push out to one side or to kind of rally you and 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 whatever um and you just wonder whether if you have a striker particularly if he's a lone striker he is very isolated he's not going to be very vocalized um and it just becomes more more difficult would you, you say think... he's isolated though 
don't think he's isolated, but I just think he, that he does. He plays very he, deep. He's he's uh, not. As far as you you don't see. About. You don't see. You don't see Kane doing the uh, the classic Jordan Henderson of uh, shouting points and organising as much as you, obviously I, you know I hate that about him, but you know that's that's, that's, that's another thing. Though. That's an over exaggeration of what a captain can do. But I mean, I, I don't necessarily think a captain has to shout and point and, and do all that stuff. But I think that it's definitely one aspect of a, of, of a kind of leader that you, that you need. He doesn't necessarily need to have the armband, but I think it definitely helps if, if you know that that's the guy we listen to. He can see everything that's going on and he can, communi- you know, he can sort of communicate if need be. Do you not think with um, having a striker as a captain, and obviously you just said Harry Kane plays quite deep, do you think he plays deep because he is captain? Because he wants to, he I wants think, to show himself that he, you know, he's more of a team player. He, you know, he, he he's got this. He feels like he's got this responsibility to get back and and help the team, rather than you know keep his position up front, which could then potentially help his team. You know, at the other end of the pitch, like I just think with strikers being, you know, the majority of the players on the pitch that score the goals, I think. Maybe giving them a captaincy might be add, might add a bit more pressure to them. That mm. I think a, a a defender or a midfielder, or like I say, someone who is further back the pitch that can that can read the game um, and understand the game, and you know, be a person that's either quite vocal. Like they don't even necessarily have to be the best player on the pitch. I don't think. I think it, natural leaders on the pitch, you know, like like Harry saying, they don't have to point and shout they might just be able to communicate effectively and mm. they, they might not be the best player on that pitch they might be like a regular starting starting 11 player that plays week in week out but mm. I just yeah. think I just think it benefits the deeper players more than attacking players and it gives them more of um, Gives them more limelight, whereas obviously strikers and wingers get a lot of limelight as it is with scoring goals. Like, mm. like with the whole, you know, Ballon d'Or majority of them, the people that win it is you attacking know, players. Wing, wingers are attacking players. Yeah, I think there'll always be that pressure, regardless yeah. for a striker, because obviously scoring goals is the most important part of football, arguably. But I think on on the flip side, you know, you were saying that. Um, a defender or someone behind a striker, the position behind the striker can see all that's going on. But on the flip side, when, let's say, the striker's team don't have possession, he can then look behind him and see what's actually going on and where all the players are. So then he can mm. also have that other sort of perspective that yeah. maybe a centre-back or a midfielder won't have. So I think it can, it can obviously work both ways. Yeah, yeah. I think I think Arsenal is a good... Um, is a good example of why I think it's probably arguably more important to have that leadership at the back as much as you can have it at the front. But um, oh, obviously when when um, when Vieira left and uh, I suppose after Henri left, then there was a bit of a a kind of... There was definitely a shortage of leadership at Arsenal for a long time. That was a big narrative. It was like, we well, you know, there's no more leaders in Arsenal. And, and that kind of went... I mean, again, correct me if I'm wrong, Egby. I know you're an Arsenal fan. Um, but there, there seems to be this sort of issue, particularly defensively, that there's no, yeah. whatever it was, organisation or, or, or leadership or whatever yeah. it's structure. And I guess um, th- that, is, that is the benefit of having, of, of having your um, 
captain at the back is is whether it's defensive midfield or, or or center back or even fullback you feel that in in those times of of not necessarily crisis but just sort of in you know mom, uh, momentary crisis in, in a match you really benefit from having a, whether it's a, a cool head or just a, a wise head or just a, a, a flipping um unmovable leader to 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 be somewhere to do something to 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 say something to structure something um and i think that that was something that was a big miss for a long long time particularly because i mean you look back at over the years in the last 10 years at arsenal like there's in terms of leaders in center midfield and center back you've really not had anyone as far as I'm aware, I mean, I know you've had like Captain Jack has been the captain. I guess you know Fabregas was 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 a was a good captain. Um, but that's been a big wasn't, wasn't he a captain? Yeah, Kishani was captain. Yeah, Kishani was captain, and was captain. But again, there was always again correct me if I'm wrong. <clears> there always seemed to be question marks over over those guys. Not just in terms of how good they were, but you know, are they the right people to be to have the armband? I mean, they all seem to kind of. You know, you had about 100 captains in five years or something, didn't you? Yeah, with, I mean, with the Arsenal situation, it's obviously difficult because I think since, I don't know, arguably the 2006 Champions League finalist team or if you want to go slightly mm. further back, the Invincibles team, we've never, or since then, we've not had any defensive solidity or structure. No. So I think <laughs> giving it to any of those defenders, I think it'll be a big ask because I think there's just this inherent sort of disorder within our Arsenal defence. So I think regardless of who you give it to, whether it's the striker midfielder or defender, I think there's going to be issues. Yeah, but, so, sorry to, to, to interject there. I, I wasn't suggesting that you should just give it to the, the players, but just having, ha, obviously you've, you've lacked a sort of leader type player back there. If, had, you, had you had that, at some point over the last however many 10 years 15 years or whatever it would have you know supremely made it made a difference even more so than i'd say having a real sort of like you know stalwart bloke up front which i guess you've had a lot of but sorry i didn't mean to cut i mean i would still arguably have would have had Omri. let's say we had that sort of like vidic maybe john terry type defender i think i still would have preferred thierry Omri having the captain's armband just again because he he sets the bar of world class. I think it would have benefited our defence, maybe having it as the, the centre back defender. But I still definitely would have had it as Thierry Henry just because of the level he was at at that time. Yeah. No, I, I think, think it would have handled the pressure as well. Yeah, I mean, as I say, I think it probably felt like the right choice, particularly given the. Um, the sort lack of, of options, <laughs> the lack of options, but the level that he was at, like he was just obviously. Yeah. And I think, we, you know, going back to the Harry Kane with England, thing, <laughs> we were discussing last week off off air how professional uh, we were discussing off air, like how um, it, pro- it arguably went to Kane because basically there's just not many options in the England in the England team. I know that you've got. Um, uh, I mean, Harry Maguire is now Man United captain. Obviously, Henderson's Liverpool captain. But after that, you know, apart from possibly Raheem Sterling, there's there's really, uh, unless you're going to go for a proper leader type person, if you're going uh, to give it give the captaincy to one of these players that is like flipping it, he is he is the he's the top guy. He's the best player. He's the he's the guy that's going to kind of lead by example. There aren't really many many options to choose from, particularly particularly as whoever's going to be your captain has got to be in the team every week. 
and there's not many yeah. not many England players I'll, who were guaranteed I'll give to that. In the um in the last eight games we've played, yeah, like Kane has he he's featured in all of them. Started in seven. Yeah, K- Kane. John Henderson. Ka- Sorry, go on. Yeah, John Henderson's always started in four. So yeah. it's not like if you're going to make Henderson captain, he's not a guaranteed pick every game. This is this actually yeah, with the number of midfielders that England have. And Do you think if he was, he would? If Henderson was a regular starter. Similarly with Kane, do you think they would have gone for Henderson over Kane? No, um, not necessarily. I think, but you know, you got, think, your, you got your stri- you got your striker, you got your captain in Kane. I don't see like there's any reason why that would now be taken away from him. I don't think they'd take it away from him, but I, I think if you if you'd had that decision made now rather than uh, what was it two three years ago when Kane got appointed. Um, if you'd had that decision now, after the six to twelve months of Jordan Henderson loving, I think you probably you probably would get it given to Henderson. Not that I think it should be, because you know you know my opinions on the guy. But I just um, think that Harry Kane's too much of a good marketing tool. Uh, for the national cynical, cynical view. He is. Uh, who, like, who, 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 who is more marketable, squeaky clean Harry Kane or sweary, shouty Jordan Henderson? <laughs> Well, it's not. It's, it's like not the just that. Though, is it? bit, it's like. not just that, though. It's the fact that it's just consistency. Who's the one player that's going to be on the team sheet? And if Harry Kane's going to be on that team sheet more than other people, then that obviously does sound like a captain should be a person that plays more regularly. <laughs> maybe that, that's that, the only. Re- maybe that's the one defining reason why he got it, just because he's in the team more often. Maybe maybe that is the case. I mean, th- there isn't many. In the England team that are so set in stone. No. I mean, you've got maybe one in Raheem Sterling or maybe Harry Maguire. Mm. And that's um, not because Harry Maguire is so, so, so much of a standout. More that... That's it, yeah. I mean, this is, why, this is why I think it's difficult. We've come, we've been very blessed over the years, particularly in the golden generation, when we had so many options of who it could have been. It could have been, I mean, you know, mm. Terry, Gerrard, Ferdinand, Lampard, Rooney, uh, Beckham, obviously. Uh, you know, and even underneath that, you know, Carragher didn't get in the team. Nedley King, um, you know, even like Ashley Cole would would have been like, yeah, he'd be he'd be up for it. Um, but now we're sort of left with aren't many there aren't many leaders and there aren't many people who you say, yeah, he's guaranteed to start. And in, in that sense, in in the absence of a truly sort of world class proper, you know. Um, Tony Adams-esque um, leader in the team. I, th- I probably think Harry Kane is, is about the, the best choice that you're going to get in terms of, in terms of England. And, and as you say, because he's one of few standout players who are really like top level, I think that lead by example stuff is, is, is sort of um, highlighted pretty well with, with him having the armband. Okay, now we come to the edge of the box once again. Uh, and it's been a it's been a topic that I've I've obviously you guys know me I've wanted to bring this up for a while, um, and that is of course what I would describe as the Paul Scholes myth. The Paul Scholes myth, the myth that he is or was ever as good as uh, Steven Gerrard or Frank Lampard. Um, it's so it's a mythology 
that has uh, like bizarrely and wrongfully crossed over into into fact if you talk to if you talk to a certain amount of people um there's a there's a football writer for the guardian um called barney rone who made a brilliant um uh point about this he said um he said to talk ill of paul skulls uh, is punishable by getting skewered in the eye by the queen or something it was, and it like it, and it, like it perfectly summed up how it is to have these have these conversations with anybody like if you if if you ever talk you know the, the whole there's the cliche thing of you know who was better lampard gerald or skulls and it's always it's always a thing and and often you find if you dare say anyone other than skulls you will get skewered in the eye by the queen or it feels like that's what should that's what should come about um but it's complete it's complete rubbish it's complete fabrication paul skulls was not on the on the level of those two in in whatever way you want to look at it um the way that the way that, that i mean this this idea that he was on the same level as though as those two only really started after he retired for the for the first part like we all we all grew up and we all um you know were football fans big football fans growing up as, as kids and teenagers and stuff in the mid noughties there was a big Lampard v Gerrard thing, particularly with England and stuff. But that was always the conversation. Skulls was Skulls was never in it, and anyone who thinks that Skulls was in that conversation pre his retirement is simply misremembering things, whether they're choosing to or just because they're, you know, they just can't remember very well. But yeah, the whole thing started um, after he retired, and possibly because when he retired around, uh, you know, that sort of 2011, 2012 time. You, you'd what had bec- what had began was this what had begun rather was this um, obsession quote unquote with um, with passing football and short short passing and possession football which Barcelona had kind of introduced and Skulls was good at that Skulls was you know he was he was a proponent of that in a way for Man United so it kind of makes sense that that there would be this kind of reevaluation of his of his ability but again. The, the comparisons with Lampard and Gerrard, the proper who was better stuff, only ever started after, after he retired. Um, we'll come on to it in a minute, but any way, any way you want to um, look at his stats compared to uh, Lampard and Gerrard, Skulls is at the bottom. Uh, whether it's goals, assists, chances created, even like defensive stats like um, tackles, blocks, interceptions and stuff, Skulls is at the bottom. And he's not just at the bottom, he is by a clear distance at the bottom and yeah, so I, went, I, went this. Again. I, I went into this trying to um yeah. look at some stats of Paul's goals that i could use to argue this point to you yeah uh, that maybe you're wrong <laughs> or, or he's, he's he's better than you remember it being yeah uh, but honestly i couldn't find it, it the the fr- from the stats i was looking at there is not any that really stand out that really make a massive mm. kind of impact he he doesn't it seems he doesn't excel in anything and there's there's um like i've been clear to you guys i don't particularly like to use stats as a kind of definitive way of arguing a point i think stats are, stats are good as as a suggestive tool uh, but I don't think that you can say, oh, stats show this, therefore. And I'm not trying to argue that, but I just think it, as a suggestive tool, it, as you say, Ash, it, 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 there's no suggestion at all that in terms of in this stats-obsessed world we live in right now, that, that he, was on, he was on the same level at all. Of course, his role changed how he was at Man United. He was probably arguably in the sort of latter 40% of his career less offensive than, than Lampard or Gerrard. But regardless, it's not as if 
his, his you know his stats are close and had he been stayed offensive they would have stayed at that level they are a lot further down than than the other two um the other is uh the 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 sort of recognition that he gets obviously we we look back and we think yeah that you know the way that people talk about the three of them now it's all they're all about on the same level um and often people if you ever get into a debate on online about about paul skull you will be showered in these photographs that have about 20 or 25 quotes from footballers or managers who, who talk about paul skulls being amazing first of all half of them are not are not real quotes um but second of all um you only really have to do about three or four minutes of a deep dive on the internet to find pretty much the same quotes about Gerard or Lampard, you know, players saying they were the best of their generation or, or what, whatever it is. But it's just become this, this bizarre thing. People will throw this, throw these quotes. Well, Javi said this or Guardiola said this. And it, it's just, you don't get that from, you know, if anyone's defending Lampard or, Scott or Gerard, they won't throw those quotes at you. Not because they don't exist, but just because there isn't this defensiveness about it. Um, and, but staying on the line of recognition you look at the awards that, the, that they were all given uh, individual awards i mean so um uh, you've got steven gerald was voted players player of the year i think it was 2006 you've got frank lampard was voted football writers player of the year paul skulls never was never singled out as the individually the best you got four player of the month awards Four player of the month awards which for his <laughs> for the amount of time he was he was there if, if if he was this player that everybody talks talks about him being suddenly surely he would he would he would have been recognized for it um he, so what was it they had lampard team of the year three times gerard team of the year eight times skulls twice um lampard world, world 11 twice gerard four times skulls zero times the big the biggest one for me though is um is the Ballon d'Or. So Lampard was his highest ranking and the Ballon d'Or was second. Um, Gerard's highest ranking is third. Um, Scholes has never got enough votes to get, to, get a, to get a ranking. And when I say he hasn't got enough votes, he hasn't got any votes. So Paul Scholes was nominated for the Ballon d'Or five times in his career. Like I think about 50 players get nominated every year. He was, you know, so in the top 50 players, that's not bad. But he didn't get a no, nobody nobody voted for him throughout in those five nominations put that into con into put that um to contrast that with let's say gerard gerard got nominated six times and got 220 votes so there were there was at least 220 um people saying he was either the best player in the world the second best player or the third best player in the world was how his vote working lampard five years five nominations rather 169 votes paul skulls zero votes at no point in during those nominations did anybody think think to vote him as as either the best or the second best or the third best, and I think that you know that that speaks volumes. You've got all these quotes about X, Y, and Z saying how influential he was, but but there's no evidence for that actually being the case when he was when he was playing. Um, you go you go to England, 2004 is when Skulls retired from international football, citing family reasons. The real reason, arguably, being that he got pushed out onto the left left side of midfield because Lampard and Gerrard were preferred. Yeah, well, the, they couldn't accommodate him into the team, could they? Couldn't accommodate him, and, and he, yeah, he was. Did you choose Gerrard and Lampard over him every time? If you yeah, and that was it. And, and, and look, forced to have. 
Sven Sven Goran Eriksson, you know, is not the be all and end all genius of football. So it's not as if Sven Goran Eriksson's decision is final. But it does say a lot that he was pushed out to the left side of midfield um, and then subsequently retired from that. Where where was the fuss kicked up by the nation I think, about this? I, th- I think him being pushed out to the left side of midfield was more to allow David Beckham and Michael Owen to. Uh, to be used more efficiently. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, in in, ter- in terms of like, you know, obviously you're gonna have, you're gonna need if you want three people, if you want those three <laughs> in midfield, the, the formation you'd need would be like a like maybe a, a four-two-three-one, which wasn't really at the time really all no. that much. And then that you'd be getting rid of your right midfielder. Yeah, and you'd be getting rid of. A player up top who works best with Emil Heskey, who'd be a partner. So you'd have one yeah. player up top. So you, you just couldn't accommodate them all in the field. Yeah, the, the, exactly. And, and the decision was made that he was the most. Um, he was he was the one that could that could be taken out. He was the yeah. one that could be removed. You could argue it's because he was the one that out of the three of them could was versatile enough to play out wide. But essentially, you play your best players in, your, in their best positions. And he was and it was decided that he that he wouldn't wouldn't play there. And the the other, the other thing to think about is so this happened in two thousand and four. This was this was a year before Lampard won the Premier League for the first time with Chelsea. This was a year before Gerrard won the Champions League with Liverpool. This is. A year, two years, three years before the, the, the sort of mammoth rise of the Lampard and Gerrard kind of being absolutely at the top of their game. Year, you know, a couple of years before that all happened, the nation decided, or Sven Goran Eriksson decided, that, that Skulls was not as good as those two. And the nation did not kick up a fuss when Skulls retired, which is, which is telling. Um, but I think that the, the, the kicker for me is like, at, at United, he was never... When when has Paul Scholes ever been the kind of standout performer there, in 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 not least in Man United's team, but in Man United's midfield, playing second fiddle to Roy, you know you think when you sort of hark back to epic Man United performances, you think of Roy Keane against Juventus again in the semi final of the Champions League, you think of Beckham against Real Madrid, um, you know you think of um, certain Ryan Giggs performances perhaps. You don't. You, your mind doesn't go to skulls. It perhaps goes to skulls a bit later, and skulls is a sort of cog in in that system. But there isn't this kind of, oh my God, Paul Skulls was the absolute standout player of that team because he wasn't. There was, you know, plenty of other players in in uh, in United who were doing it. And I guess the argument you could argue by saying that, well, it's harder to stand out in Man United's team, you know, for Paul Skulls. But you know, Lampard throughout his from two thousand and three onwards had exactly the same amount of competition in terms of world-class players in Chelsea's team to stand out against. You know, you've got Lampard stood out as the absolute, you know, player that he was in a midfield that featured Claude Makélélé and Michael Balak and Michael Essien and all these sorts of players in a team that had Didier Drogba and John Terry and Ashley Cole and Petr Cech. Why, what, that can't be an excuse for why Paul Scholes wasn't, didn't have that reverence at the time. Because he, you know, he he just did not make the same impact. Same, say, even could even argue with Steven Gerrard. Obviously, it's easier to stand out um, in in a in a Liverpool team that has fewer, uh, you know, genuinely world class players. But you know, he even stood out as the absolute pin up with a, a midfield that featured Javi Alonso. You know, even Javier Mascherano wasn't wasn't a bad wasn't a bad bloke. Um, so yeah, I I just think that. Uh, this is, I'm not trying to suggest that Paul Scholes is rubbish or anything. Obviously, he's a fantastic player and a fantastic um, servant to the Premier League. But it's just criminal to suggest that he was 
ever on the same level and even more criminal to suggest that he was better than than those two because they're simply on whatever way you judge it there is no evidence for it other than hearsay from people who misremember what his career was actually like rant over <laughs> it's been it's been seven years in the in, in the making <laughs> not feel good harry the steam, I know. the steam is finally finally uh, you know clearing the room a little bit <laughs> I like I'm back at uni listening to my lectures. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I mean, I, I don't like, because obviously this has been my, you guys are all my mates, you know my opinion on this, but like, obviously, because I usually just scream and shout this at you. What do you guys think? I don't even know if you agree with what I say. I think no, this, uh, this stats bit's hard. I think he he definitely probably should have scored and could have scored a lot more goals, gotten a lot more assists and that. It's, it's not even the goals and assists when I would passes. Literally just passes. <laughs> yeah. like completed passes, interceptions, uh, aerial duels. I mean, he's not uh, going to win aerial duels every Yeah, I was looking for something, like anything to like, come back with. Where are, but yeah. I just couldn't find it. Did he win in the gingerness? That's, that's for sure. <laughs> I think even Harry's the, going big there, though. The way he played, though, I compare him to, to Xavi in the sense of he just, he was like the metronome. He just, kept the ball ticking he dictated the play yeah and well, i think that, in that type of that type of player is obviously not going to get that much recognition but i think there's no. no doubt in how technically gifted he was and i think arguably he was maybe more of a natural complete footballer compared to, to lampard and gerard arguably with the way he played he's made it just seem so effortless well you say this egg bit i i think i spoke to harry a while ago and I can't remember where I found it, but he's basically, he's a failed striker that's fallen back. And because he's fallen back from being obviously up top to a holding midfielder in a way, having that attacking mindset, growing up with that attacking mindset, he knows where players should be and shouldn't be. So maybe that's the main reasoning why he was pulled back so then he could be like you said be this person that's ticking the ball over in attacking ways or just keeping the ball moving but maybe the experience that he had of being a you know being a striker who was younger and then obviously falling back it helped him a lot and I think that the other reason why I'm going to a point that you said Harry that he got all this recognition in the in the United team at the end of his career is because all these world-class players um that was at United when he was, you know, like you got gigs and Keane and all that lot. You didn't have that as much at United anymore and had a lot more inconsistencies. And he he was a more consistent player as he got older because he was just doing simpler stuff. Um, obviously, he had Ronaldo and Rooney and, and Carrick and, and you know, like Vidic and, and Ferdinand. Obviously, I'm not saying that, that they're not world-class because obviously they're all world-class. But I'm just saying he's... He ha- he's had a, more, a lengthier career than they had at the time, and he just knew what he had to do, which was just the simple stuff, ticking the ball over, going back to Eggy's Egg, point, and just feeding the channels, the attackive channels, and stuff like that. And like I said, I don't think he was the most successful player at all um, when it comes down to passing and stuff. Like, there'll always be people saying that he had, you know, an, an incredible eye for where the ball should be, but. It wasn't every game that he was doing that. Like in comparison, in comparison to like Kevin De Bruyne, and now when you see him, you know exactly that he's going to be striving that ball forward. Yeah, it might not. You know, seven times out of ten, it might not be 
the perfect pass. But it, you just know that in every game, he will have that kind of calibre of a pass in his locker. Whereas with Scholes, it wasn't every game where he was making the world-class passes. Yeah, I, I agree in the sense that when you, you know, Kevin De Bruyne has, has his merits and, and his flaws as well. But like, I think when you, well, you're right. When you look at the way that Man City operate, and particularly with Kevin De Bruyne, because obviously his passing is his, is his main attribute and stuff, there is much more of a sense, more so than when Skulls was, was around. And again, if, if you disagree, you are, you are simply misremembering. Um, there's definitely a sense of like, um, you know, uh, th- the the strings that Kevin De Bruyne is pulling is absolutely affecting and, and guiding this game. And people, there's the cliche that Skulls was the metronome and Skulls was the guy who just kept things ticking over. And you know, I, I hear I hear that a lot and and, and stuff. And, and you know, of course, he was he was a he was a part of that team and he was you know had had his importance and had his ability. But that a truly I believe a truly world class player is that difference maker. And I think that. Skulls was often second fiddle to those difference makers. Yes, you can argue, you can argue that um, you know he his his role was that kind of like Javi Javi role, you know, where he's he's just playing simple passes and being in the right positions and, and X Y and Z. But I almost think that's because he wasn't the player enough to to be that to be the to be the guy that he was at the start of his career, which was a which was a, an attacking midfielder. He was an advanced midfielder. He didn't move back because they realized, oh shit, we've got an absolutely unbelievably hold, great holding midfielder. It was because he wasn't he wasn't good enough to be an attacking midfielder anymore. And again, it's not because, I'm not trying to suggest that he was moved back because he was rubbish, but just that he he found he found a bit more of a footing in that slightly more defensive role because he wasn't at the top of his game anymore in in an attacking role. And I think if had you had um, uh, you know Gerard or Lampard ha- having having to do that role in in their career, which to an extent they did a little bit towards the end of the career, but not not to the same degree Skulls did. Had either of them played that role and had that defined role of you know get the ball keep it simple keep things ticking over find the easy pass they could have done it absolutely as easily as skulls did it and they would have stood out as easily as skulls did it i simply like people say you know skulls had the most natural ability out of all of them and lots of people do say that and there's definitely an argument but having watched all of them for you know their careers post 2000 i simply cannot see anything that skulls can do that lampard and gerard can't A lot of silence there. Well, um, Paul, Building if you are space. listening uh, right now <laughs> in your uh, mansion with your gold AirPods on, I'd like to know that you are a failure, sir. Like he didn't. He was. I, I, he, <laughs> he's. He's not. He, I know it was towards the end of his career, but like, why is Ferguson not playing him in the, in the two Champions League finals against Barcelona if he's so bloody good and important? I know. Again, he was in his mid thirties, which again is 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 sort of there's there's there is. It's not like oh, he, he's rubbish. But it, but I, I just think that again, if if I he mean, was a Champions League final, is a game of football that is played after a lot of football. Yeah. If you if you see what I mean, like you say, he is mid thirties. His legs are going. You know. But you put but, but you play like when you think about it, the guy. So um, Lampard that. Uh, by the way, 19th of May today, ladies and gentlemen, eight years to the day since Chelsea won the Champions League. Yeah. Lampard was 34 in that game and no way in hell would anyone reason that he had to be dropped. I don't, I don't know how old Skulls was in 2009 for the, for the game against Barcelona, but I wouldn't imagine he was, he was a lot older than that. Possibly maybe 35 at a push, but I'm not even sure if that's true. Like, I, I just think that 
again, I don't want to say due to one match, I think therefore you can make it make a judgment about this, but it does say something that if he was this player, this absolutely golden generation, absolutely fantastic phenomenon that he supposedly was, why is he not playing in their most important game of the season? Yeah. I think it's because of his lack of positional awareness. I think especially when you're playing against Barca, imagine you've got to be completely like defensively astute. I don't. I, I. 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 think that's sorry. I don't. I don't want to cut you off. But I, I think that's a good. It's a fine argument to to pose. But would you? Would you? Would you see Chelsea doing that when with with Lampard against Bayern Munich in 2012? I mean, he's not the most. I guess Lampard's different because Lampard's he's more offensive. So Lampard, you can get away with playing him higher up the pitch yeah, because Lampard's firmer up the pitch. In, 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 that that game, that in that game against Munich, he was not. He was not an offensive player. He, you, may, you may as well have gone because you watch it. I mean, you can watch it back. We, we defend for, for 120 minutes. That's all we do. You might as well take him off, put a, you know, Raul Morales or I know he's suspended, but Raul Morales or you know, some someone more more defensive, Oro Romeo, somebody who's going to be better than Lampard in that position. And yet, why why is it that he, is it is he there because he's because of his name or is it or is it just because he? You know, is is there's something there's something there there's something about his ability that offers more. Yeah, Lamps is obviously he's a big game player, isn't he? He'll always nick you a goal, so mm. you would you would always have him on the pitch. Well, I think Paul Scholes is more of a he's not like I said he's not the most tactically positionally aware, but alongside someone he can give you that option to the few times that you do have the ball dictate dictate the play <laughs> and be able to sort of play out. So there's, there's almost two different different plays for sort of different occasions. Mm. No, I think I think that's not untrue. But again, I, I just think that <laughs> that emphasizes that you say they're two different plays for different occasions. I, I think that just emphasizes that Paul Scholes was not the influence that people claim that he was. You know, he he had his role for sure, and he had his he had his abilities, but you know, what, it, it, he was not undroppable. You know, he was not undroppable for England. He was not undroppable for Man United. You know, there were, like, I, I would happily. This is this is not something I have against Man. If if the conversation was who was better, Lampard, Gerrard, or Keane, absolutely, let's have the conversation. Bring it on. You know, let's. Yeah, absolutely. I I don't mind that. I'm so just amazed that that it's become skulls has been pushed into this bracket whereby it's like that there are you know he doesn't deserve to be there and moreover players that you have. Other than other than him, deserve to be there. It's just it's a bizarre phenomenon that is just spiraled out of control, um, and, and here we are in a in a weird kind of vortex of of uh, of Paul Scholes' love that is isn't going away anytime soon. Well, it will be ended one podcast at a time. <laughs> yeah, <it will>. we'll <laughs> just keep harping on about it for uh, for enough. Well, time. I mean, I, I, I really want. I really want to have a weekly section where I talk about someone in Manchester United's ruin. Yeah, I feel that's sort of becoming a bit of a theme with you. So we could, uh, <laughs> we could well so do that. Say, um, Jesse Lingard. <laughs> Jesse Lingard's been ruined. He was such a promising yeah. young, <laughs> such a promising young man. He, he still is. He still is. Still no, he's not. Still got, no, still not. got a lot of potential, bro. Come on. No, he hasn't. Gonna say, his, like, his career is in the gutter and it's lucky that he's still classed as a United player with the yeah, stats that he's around yeah but he's what like 19, 20 like he's got a lot of time yeah he's, he's, he's got time he's got a right <laughs> old age of 27 yeah <laughs> um, I mean he's just got he, he, he actually just signed his professional contract last year 
Yeah. Um, <laughs> he'll be out by. He'll be. He'll be. He'll be out. Yeah, I feel like we're ripping on Manchester United a lot as well. Like, yeah. Oh, well. well, there's no one. There's no one here to defend them really. So it's. it's <laughs> yeah. No, I'm not Let's get fuzzy on this. In we on can this. rip on Liverpool yeah. and Manchester United as much as we want, and no one will say a word. Yeah, fuzzy. If you're listening, uh, <laughs> don't push me down the stairs. Um, <laughs> I. Uh, no, I'm only joking, mate. Um, Right. Well, so we'll see. We'll see if we can squeeze in one more. So um, we had obviously an all English Champions League final last year, uh, an all English Europa League final as well, which was uh, a hell of a much better game. I'm not just saying as a Chelsea fan, but um, <laughs> yeah, for some of us, uh, well, it was a poor Champions League <laughs> final for the for the brilliant semi finals and quarter finals that we had. It was anyway. Going off topic. Um, and obviously the Champions League this year has been um, scuppered by COVID, uh, but we had the very impressive um, Man City win at the Bernabeu. Um, my question to you guys um, is, is this, you know, is, is Liverpool and Man City's, um, and to an extent Tottenham's, um, successes in, in Europe, or, you know, the signs of, of the successes, is that a fair representation of, of how strong the Premier League is? Or is it just two isolate or two or three isolated incidences of these teams have done well, but actually, you know, the Premier League generally is still, uh, you know, not as not quite as good as other leagues. Or is the Premier League has it always been the best league? What what do you, what do you guys think? It's a bit of an open open ended question, but we've we've seen English football has seen some success after a lot of not uh, you know a lack of success in the last few years. Is is that reflecting in the in the quality of the Premier League at all? I think. It's just it's, there's many factors that depend on this, but I think it's just the way it's just all down to timing when it's with other teams. So you look at Real Madrid, they're rebuilding really with the amount of money that they spent. Um, you know, like you look at Dortmund now, they're looking more like a, a complete um, squad than they have in the past few seasons. So I just think it's just more than anything. I think it's just the timing. Mm. Um, I'm I'm not because I think I believe that the Premier League is definitely the the hardest league in the world. There's a lot more um, money involved in it, which then essentially you can invest more money in players, better quality players. So I think the overall competition is a lot more difficult. Um, which which league is it that has a booming <clears throat> a winter break? Uh, Spain has Does one. It, yeah, so why well, you know, why do they have a winter break? We don't. Um, and I just why, think... Why do you, that gives why? us an advantage. No, it doesn't give us an advantage, but the fact that... <clears throat> I think that because we don't have this break, per se, I think yeah. the advantage is definitely for the Spanish teams, because they do have a winter break and, you know, they have time off to... Oh, to saying, work on things and focus on things because we don't have the winter break therefore we're at a disadvantage in the fact that we compete regardless means that we're stronger for it is that what you're saying yeah in a sense yeah like us as well as i'm guessing the bundesliga um french league as well i'm not sure like mm. if, if spain's the only league that has a winter break then obviously every, every other kind of league isn't benefiting from that break but then it shows you know it kind of shows how good the teams competing from their leagues actually are because they're competing whilst playing multiple games yeah. um, 
you know, over that period. Whereas obviously in Spain they don't. But I just think that again, going back to the whole money in football, there's just you look at the teams and the people that have won the leagues over the years and obviously you look at the Premier League, there was a time where it was, you know, mainly United and Liverpool and the odd, you know, Blackburn, Arsenal, Arsenal. But you look at you look at the the teams that have won it over the last twenty years, and it's so inconsistent. And you look at the teams that have won the Bundesliga over the last twenty years. It's mainly just the same two teams, or the mainly one team. Same with PSG. Same with you know um, the Spanish league. I think that. There's always them two, three teams that always win it, whereas the Premier League we had Leicester win it one year, you know. When City that, have been that, dominating it, Chelsea denote? have been dominating. We've got more variety of people that can actually win it, which suggests that the, the competition is harder. But does that necessarily denote strength? I mean, like Leicester, Leicester winning it was, uh, I know it was obviously a, a, a sort of a, a very impressive, incredible thing, but it was it was just kind of on a fluke that about five of the usual title challenges had awful seasons. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, yeah, like it was probably only Tottenham that were the only team that, that were title challenges that didn't that actually had a a better season than the previous one. Yeah, all right, all right, all right. <laughs> Third and two or three, so I don't yeah. <laughs> but yeah, um, you, you say it's more competitive though. Liverpool, oh, which would be 25 points ahead of second place, aren't they? Yeah. This year, yeah. yeah. There's more people that can win it, but yeah. between first and second, it's 25 points. And then you look at the yeah, Bundesliga this year. No, eight okay. points between first and third. But the reason why. Liverpool are so far ahead is because they're obviously they're doing really well. But yeah. teams like Manchester City and you know United and you know the they're not being as good as Liverpool because yeah, I will all say. the other lower teams are opposing more of a threat and taking the points off. Whereas obviously Liverpool it shows the class that they have they have been so good this season to you know be so far ahead whilst other teams have dropped off. But again, that's no discredit to the smaller teams because the only reason why the points have dropped off is because of the smaller teams and there's more money in, invested into into them than in other leagues. The smaller teams have just caught like, the likes of Tottenham, the likes of Arsenal and Manchester United. The smaller teams have caught them in a, in a period of transition and they are they're mm. taking they're, they're, you know, they're taking advantage of this period of transition to gain points that they wouldn't normally get you know, draws away. At well, Norwich, Norwich the season for City. Can't yeah. say that City are going through a, a build-up, but Norwich did it. Well, I, I Obviously, they're bottom of the league. You're, um, you're missing a centre-back uh, in Vincent Company that you would normally have, and Imer at the report has been out for most of the season. So you, yeah, you, but it's not you a can say you're in a transitional period of like, purchasing a new centre-back. Uh, your mm. left-back's not the strongest uh, that I've seen in the league or like the scene that you've had wow brutal I mean quite 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 arguable I mean I think the fact that we've got such strength in depth with most of the positions obviously by apart from um, centre back at the moment uh, maybe that that could be a factor why maybe the left back Benjamin Mendy or yeah. Cancelo who's not even at the club at the moment has been loaned out already um, not Cancelo Angelino um, I, think, I think you can look at the different the, the different nuances of 
of what makes you know uh, teams successful in, in an individual season. You know, obviously there are lots of things you can you can look into with regards to that. But I think generally, like I guess to to sort of bring us back in, if um, I guess pre this these two very very impressive Liverpool Man City teams, it's particularly when you look at England's Europe's English football's European success, it's been pretty limited in the last sort of five six years, as far as I'm as far as I'm aware. Um, like, does I guess does this does this represent a a sort of um, a resurgence from it, or again is it like as you say, is it just these kind of we have these two freak freakishly good teams you look at the likes of Chelsea Man United and and Arsenal all arguably at a level lower than where they've all been in the last 10 years I guess really especially you know obviously Man United but they're all kind of not you don't really see them I mean look look at the way Chelsea got whacked in the Champions League by Bayern just on a different Bayern on a different level is you know is is there is there still that is there still that gap is this just Matt is, is, is Man City and Liverpool are they just are they just ridiculously good or or um, or is the or is the Premier you know is the has the has the gap between the top and the bottom of the Premier League suffered like it's like it's difficult to judge. I think and Ash, you alluded to it earlier. I think the teams that you mentioned, so like Chelsea, United, and Arsenal, they're all basically in transitional phases. They're all teams that are rebuilding. So obviously Arsenal have got Arteta, who's a completely completely new manager. We've got, you guys have got Frank Lampard, who's a very young manager. And then Solskjaer's been at the job for a while, but I think there's still a certain lack of structure within that club. So when there was the um, English dominance in the Champions League, I feel that that was because there was solidity and all the teams were in their prime. So, and I feel that the Champions League final last year with Liverpool and Tottenham was a reflection of two teams who were basically in their prime. So Liverpool under Klopp obviously had that stellar season along with City and Tottenham obviously had that really, really good solid team under Pochettino. So I think that's... yeah, and I mean, you know, Tottenham absolutely deserved deserved to be there in a sense, but but probably if it wasn't Tottenham, it was going to be Man City to to add to your yeah. point. So I guess you could say, yeah, again, a team that was in their prime yeah. with Pep Guardiola. So it's I think it's it's just seasons with the Champions League. I feel that the Premier League's going through a transition, so that's allowed like the the lower teams to now catch up. That's why instead of having four teams competing for the Champions League. We have six, potentially mm. seven when Newcastle become the, the rich, wealthy team. <laughs> yeah, of course. So yeah. it's, it's just peaks and troughs. It's just through the transitions and phases. And it's, so you've got that going on with the Premier League. Then you also have that potentially going on with Germany. And you know, a few years ago, Bayern were the team to be. Then they dipped off. Now it seems like they might be getting back to it. Mm. Um, Dortmund, similarly as well. I mean, Real Madrid and Barcelona, they're... Their teams haven't done that well. Exactly, they've dipped compared to about five, six years ago when on the pet they were dominating Barcelona. Mm. So it's just all about phases and transitions and it's about making the most of it. And and yeah, and mm. you never know in the next few years, it could be basically maybe the Bundesliga. They're the teams that are in their prime that are winning it two, three, four years in a row and the English-Spanish teams have dropped off and then a few phases after that it might be back to, to Real Madrid and Barcelona dominating again.
Thanks very much for listening. Uh, if you want to get in touch with us on Twitter and let me know how wrong my full skulls opinions are, uh, feel free to give us a follow or just an abusive comment, whichever you like, at Edge of the Box Pot. Thanks very much. We'll see you next week.